This is Office Hours, the show for sharing experiences and stories in security, risk management, compliance, and audit. Brought to you by Galvanize. Now, here's your host, Dan Zitting. All right. Welcome back to Office Hours, everybody. Today, we are trying the first episode in our new format that we're very excited to share with you. And most importantly, I have back my now permanent co-host, or at least as permanent as it will be for now, uh, Mr. Phil Lim. Phil, how are you? I'm very good, Dan. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining. I'm uh, Chief Product and Strategy Officer at Galvanize. Phil is a Lead Product Manager at Galvanize. And thank you to Galvanize for supporting uh, supporting the podcast here. Um, our objective is to make compliance, security, risk, and audit professionals stand out from the crowd. We're trying to expand awareness of what organizations like yours are facing, highlighting some external forces that are changing around us, and mostly increasing tech savvy, which is really our role in the broader governance, risk, and compliance world. And today's show theme Phil is bribery, fraud, corruption, and crime. And we're going to start with our big headline. So one of our two lead stories today, Phil, is a benchmarking report survey that I thought would be a good overarching, what's the state of fraud kind of story. And this was released by the uh, Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, which produced great content, by the way. Um, and this was uh, released in September, but it's called Fraud in the Wake of COVID-19 Benchmarking Report. And it is completely free. Link is in the show notes, free to everybody on the web. And what it said is as of August, 77% of respondents said they'd observed an increase in overall level of fraud and um, a third of the people noting that that's been significant. And that's up from having done the same benchmarking in May. And the sentiment was that these findings um, are are likely to continue. 92% saying they expect to see further increase in the overall level of fraud um, in the coming year. And uh, nearly half expect that to be significant. Dan, that's a lot of great figures and such. And a survey is great to collect that information. But why do you think the increase is upon us? Why are people noticing more fraud right now? I think in all forms of fraud, the fraud triangle has gotten worse, more severe. There's more reason to rationalize. There's more pressure for both personal needs as well as corporate performance. And um, with all the changes and, and disruption that goes on with remote working and everything else, there's increased opportunity. So I would say all three sides of the fraud triangle have worsened or deteriorated during COVID. That's a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> There's obviously the opportunity with, with the change in how everyone's working and, and so forth. But I think the, probably the biggest thing is around the, the increased pressure and uncertainty, that, the financial pressure that, that has befallen a lot of individuals, especially those have, that have been disrupted from their, their previous work or life. So I guess the question is, what should we be doing about it? And I suppose what bothers me is I don't think I have yet perhaps cursory, but I don't think I've yet seen um, in particular finance investigations, internal audit, really, I would say, shift their risk assessment to account for this and actually do something about it. I don't see a material change in investment toward fraud detection prevention 
would you say otherwise? No, I, I really haven't seen that in speaking with our clients either. There's certainly an element of uh, our customer base that we've talked to that are interested in things like additional monitoring of emails, keywords, uh, potential suspicious transactions. But there are a certain large number of customers who are really still in just getting over their crisis mode and haven't really pointed their time and energy towards addressing the increase in fraud. So fraud's a really broad topic. And I think your comment there leads well into where is this coming from? So in the report, the top, uh, the top risks were first and foremost, cyber fraud. So you mentioned email monitoring and some of those kinds of things. Cyber fraud was the top concern, um, email compromise, ransomware, hacking. Really, I think it comes down to social engineering is heightened because everybody's sense of what's going on is, is heightened and makes people more vulnerable. Um, but that, that was um, 83% of respondents already seeing an increase in these schemes. But there were other significant risks too. So unemployment fraud, we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but in the US in particular, I think unemployment fraud is really severe. Payment fraud, so things like uh, credit card fraud, mobile payments, things of that nature. And then uh, one we've actually seen happening, fraud by vendors and sellers. So depending on the industry, I think overbilling in particular is an, is an issue here, um, but misrepresentation, price gouging, kickbacks, all of those sorts of schemes. Phil, amidst all of those, where would you be investing in, in particular, in what kind of technology? I would be investing in monitoring and detection, first and foremost, but also in resources to to look at the outcomes of those monitoring and detection as well. It's one thing to monitor and detect, and yet another to actually follow up and affect change and identify the real instances of fraud, because those are two different things. So you and I have been involved a lot over the years in, should we say, detection technologies that do rule-based detection. So let's watch all of our payments for red flags defined by certain rules that may indicate an overbilling or a kickback. or Let's watch um, emails for certain keywords and we'll review every one of those. Given that the world has changed materially and with that change, it may make it difficult for rule detection happen. When you talk about that kind of investment, do you think it should be uh, primarily rule-based detection or are we moving into a true need for machine learning, fuzzy matching, these sorts of things to actually be good and production ready? Yeah, I mean, it somewhat depends on what how you define rule-based. Do you include statistical analysis in rule-based? Do you include, you know, basic machine learning regression um, analysis as part of rule-based? These are deterministic algorithms, ultimately. So if you consider the nature of deterministic algorithms, then yeah, I still think there's a huge role for that. There's a thought that machine learning can be a panacea, but yeah, I, I think there's a role for both rule-based and more, um, like you said, fuzzy methods of detection? I would agree. And the things that people who don't understand statistics very well thinks live somewhere um, in between those, it's, I think it's time we all take a, a, uh, a baseline lesson in, in statistics. I think that leads well into the last point from the overall report that I think is worth highlighting, and that's that budgets for anti-fraud programs um, are generally expected to hold steady or increase. 38% said increase, uh, 48% said uh, remain steady. 14% decreased. That's a good lift, but at the same time, it's also not reflective of the increase in fraud. Do you think organizations are going to get better at this this year? And in particular, 
look, you know, we're biased, but fraud's a technology game. So our people's tech set, our company's tech savvy, um, our, our, uh, technical ability to do this kind of de- detection. Is it going to evolve materially this year? It's hard to say because really, I don't. I think technology is a, a big part of it, and absolutely, the t- companies need to invest on the technology side. But also, just as important is like you were alluding to just previously, people need to be invested in as well. And it's it's no good to put the best tools in front of risk professionals or audit professionals or compliance professionals that don't understand the outcomes of those tools. So I think it's just as important that organizations take the time to invest in their people to make sure that that side of the equation is, is sorted out as well. I think that pretty well covers it for our lead story. I recommend everybody take a look at the report and follow the ACFE's content. Anything else to wrap up on, on uh, kind of the overarching state of fraud uh, before we get into our, our more granular stories, Phil? How, how much of this is coming from internal versus external is another angle that I thought didn't get dug into in this particular article. Dan, I, I don't know how much you think is coming internally versus externally, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it would be a cop-out to say both, wouldn't it? But I do think there's a material new external pressure. Anytime you massively disrupt the system, criminals will find an opportunity to game it and so unemployment fraud was a great example here that the new social engineering vectors is a new um, is is new here. And also just the supercharged political environment, I think, has heightened sensitivity to stories about things like fraud and corruption. And so, you know, I would say risk has sh- probably shifted just as much internally as it has externally. But I think the perception of external damage is probably motivating the increases seen in the survey more than anything. Hmm. Okay. You seem to disagree. I, I don't disagree. Uh, I, I think external is a, a, a driver, but I think internal is just as, like you said, it's, it's a cop-out to call it both ways. I guess one observation that I've had in my time here is, and maybe this this leads to a separate conversation around transparency being the cure for corruption, but what are the expectations of privacy of employees? What are the expectations of privacy for vendors and suppliers? How would you feel if you as a vendor or supplier had your invoices being shared so that they can be detected using external software or, or technology, for example? Is that something that has changed or is that something that's relevant for our discussion? I think the reality is, is that as we continue to move through the regulatory environment, take bribery, for example, the fines and the enforcement is so severe. And the regulators say you have to monitor for this stuff. If you're any kind of a vendor, or frankly, an employee, I don't think you have a choice. Privacy, like it or not, you're going to have to be monitored in every way from Sunday. Because the company um, is subject to such severe penalty. But you can see now how there's a, a, a tension between these two, these two competing priorities of transparency and detection and monitoring versus the, the continued increase in expectation of privacy and privacy legislation and privacy regulation. And that's a big challenge that com- companies and individuals need to, to, to find that balance. Privacy was surely dead until the regulators have said, yep, you have to do that too in California, in Europe, and and beyond. So that shall be an interesting conflict to watch 
uh, evolve. So, Phil, I want to move on to uh, this week's lead story from inside of Galvanize for all of our high bond users, Galvanize customers that are listening. And this time it's a big one. There is a big new release of the robotics capability available in our high bond platform. And in this case, specifically, it is ACL for Windows version 15. And so you are the perfect person to talk to about this, given you are the lead product manager for our robotics capability. So first of all, congratulations on a really great release. Thanks. There was a tremendous amount of effort that went into it from across the organization, of course. Excellent. So for those who don't know, can you just briefly describe what is Highbond and why is uh, the ACL robotics capability in it important? Highbond is an integrated risk management platform for audit risk and compliance professionals to essentially act as their system of record, as well as their platform for affecting more conscious organizations to create barriers and and protection around uh, organizational assets. ACL for Windows is the data automation component for Highbond. It's a data analytics studio for risk professionals. Essentially, it's an Excel on steroids. And the latest version of ACL introduces 50 new and improved connectors for connecting to more data sources. Why is that impactful? Well, we've been working more and more with organizations like large tech companies, which I won't name, but they're they're bringing in data from hundreds of different systems to monitor for their, their user access and cyber, cyber risk and to be able to automate that. That's something that's happened, for example, if you look at the CRM world and marketing automation and how much that has really changed and in fact transformed the business of marketing and sales. That very same change is happening right now to risk compliance and audit professionals. And risk compliance and audit professionals need that type of automation just as much as marketers or customer service people. So that's what ACL's role is, provide that automation. Yeah, outstanding. And so maybe it's fair to characterize to say, in almost all cases in risk and compliance for 100 years now, the vast majority of cases we look at a risk like what we just described, kickback bribery risk. We go back in time and do assessments. And assessments means people filling out forms and us uh, or, or otherwise manually testing and looking at a, a risk or a compliance issue. This robotics capability says, hey, investigate once. That's now systematized and and automate forever, correct? That's right. So using the new, um, well, just tell me a little, just for, for our long time, and, and many of our, our customers have been using ACL for Windows for over 20 years. For our long time um, customers, can you just briefly run down, um, you mentioned 50 new data connectors, but what else is new about the version 15 release? Yeah. Also around what we were just discussing earlier around fuzzy types of analysis. We've proved our fuzzy matching analysis with new uh, function uh, around sorting words and, and helping you clean your data for, for fuzzy matching purposes. But we've also introduced new capabilities into our machine learning algorithms to be able to support the use of date time in analysis, uh, which is huge because as you see, some of these frauds and, and suspicious transactions, they're going to come in at certain times of the day or certain days of the week. And that is now uh, it's cap- our, our data analytics are now capable of using that data and that information for determining whether or not a transaction is suspicious. Excellent. And on those 50 new data connectors, I think those connectors are for all kinds of different sources from 
sources we might monitor for purposes of cyber risk to financial systems to um, all kinds of other things. Can you give just a couple of examples of what kind of data sources we're talking about? Yeah, there's obviously the bread and butter stuff around ERPs and and accounting systems. NetSuite, we've got uh, Oracle, new Oracle systems, um, plenty of new cloud vendors and and, and also on-premise connectors as well. Okay, and then UPS, like the shipping company. Yeah, shipping company. How much more shipping are you doing nowadays as you were compared to a year ago, even? 50% more. And it's not just you. Organizations are doing more and more virtual and shipping types of activities. And one area of risk actually is around all these really, really small transactions that go through these shipping companies and how much of those transactions are actually being audited and looked at. Oh, brilliant. And so all kinds of things I can think about of, of correlating orders with shipments um, that that actually physically happen with the shipping company. Um, uh, all kinds of interesting things you could look at fraud ways with that. Um, any other types of data sources you'd call out? Yeah, just in general, um, the, our, our ability to connect to APIs has increased tenfold. We're now able to more securely connect to APIs, to more API sources, to flatten all the different complex API connections. It'll allow you to do things like use the Google Distance API to match against your mileage transactions to suss out fraud. Um, again, with the more shipping, more and more organizations are carrying their own fleets as well. Very cool and very nerdy. I was trying to lead you also down the path of mentioning the likes of Splunk and and tools like that that are cybersecurity tools. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've got Splunk. We've got uh, vulnerability scanners like Tenable and Qualys involved as well um, as part of our, of our connector suite. Um, so organizations are going to be able to much better manage and automate their cyber risk um, as part of this new release as well. All incredible opportunities to to add new types of data and new analytics and new machine learning into the mix in evaluating uh, and making risk and compliance related evaluations. Um, the one question I want to, well, I have two questions left I want to ask you, Phil. Um, what is the first thing you're going to do or help a customer do with this new capability that will change the world? Or did you already give it to me with UPS? There's the UPS thing for sure, but we're actually going to take a bunch of publicly available information on new government spending that has occurred um, in the wake of the COVID crisis and turn our attention towards that, especially with our new fuzzy matching and machine learning technologies, as well as connecting to these data sources via API to actually actively monitor for duplicates and outliers and suspicious transactions that our governments are handing out to potentially scrupulous individuals and entities. And there is a lot of that going on. Excellent. So to wrap up my last question, uh, where can one get started with uh, with next steps? Yeah, sure. Uh, if you are not currently a Galvanize customer, certainly you can reach out and contact uh, Dan or myself directly or just come to our website at wegalvanize.com. If you are a current customer, head to our highbond.com launchpad and download ACL Analyst for 15 and install. And we'll put some links in the show notes to materials on what's included in the release, training, et cetera. Um, outstanding. Okay. Thank you for that, Phil. And with our uh, overall state of the industry and what's going on inside of Galvanize wrapped up, we will move on to the news.
Okay. On to our next segment, the news or otherwise what I'd like to think of as the case studies in risk and compliance that the world has has sent us recently, Phil. In our first story, the uh, I call this the that's going to hurt story, a Harvard fencing coach was charged in an admissions bribery scandal. Effectively, this coach had worked with a taken bribes from a parent to help get kids into Harvard on the assumption that they were expert fencers. Wait, when did this happen? Did this just happen recently or is this part of the Varsity Blues? No, in fact, this happened in 2019 while the whole situation with Lori Laughlin and USC was already well in flight and in fact being tried in court. So there's really no excuse. There's there's no excuse, but um, we don't care about that. People do unscrupulous things. If what's alleged here is true, both the coach and the parent are in the wrong and should get the full extent of the law. Um, my concern is with Harvard. This is risky. Is there something Harvard could do to, and other uh, educational institutions could be doing to, to watch for this sort of thing? I don't know. <laughs> you can't think of a single thing. Uh, proactively, for example, implementing a conflict of interest program like large corporations might. Oh, yeah. Well, why don't they have these types of programs? I mean, if you are any sort of pharmaceutical organization or if you are like any of these other manufacturing, engineering, you have to disclose all of the gifts. It's essentially a zero tolerance policy on bribery. That's right. So our customers often do this in high bond. There's no excuse. The, the world knows how to run conflicts of interest programs, um, which it seems to me this would be an opportune moment for, for educational institutions to do that. And, um, and just otherwise, I would imagine a little bit of analysis of admission and scholarships data might catch these sorts of things with, with student athletes. Now, I also have to build on this because it, we're doing the episode on corruption and it was in the paper this morning, in the front of the Wall Street Journal this morning, that similarly, I would have to say that's going to hurt. And Apple, head in compliance and cybersecurity, uh, was indicted for offering iPads as bribes for gun permits to the Santa Clara Sheriff's Department. Oh, similarly, Phil, um, what's going on here? It would almost be funny if it wasn't the head of cybersecurity at Apple. I mean, you could almost understand it if it was a VP of sales or someone else, but cybersecurity and some compliance. Perhaps so, but we know fraud happens from the most trusted people, right? So I guess the question would be, Apple surely has programs to, to monitor for things like this. The question is, did they catch it? Don't know whether they did or, or not or how this, how this evolved, but surely something that um, programmatically controls could be implemented for. In the next story, this I call the story, the regulators mount up story. There is a group, the, the OECD, that's uh, broadly speaking uh, recognized as, as uh, perhaps the most influential uh, anti-bribery group in the world in some respects. They just released information praising uh, the U.S. on its enforcement against foreign bribery. Interesting because during the Trump administration, this may not be the way the U.S. government is perceived, but the U.S. continues to lead in an enforcement against um, transnational uh, corruption and was very much recognized that way because of its work uh, with the FCPA. Phil, what do you think this will, uh, will this mean anything for, for other regulators around the world? It's, it's interesting because the FCPA is not necessarily seen as one of the strongest pieces of regulation out there. The UK Bribery Act is essentially unanimously known as a much stronger 
and stricter bribery act, but yet the enforcement is the key. And how much do I wonder if this is about the U.S.'s particular position in the world markets um, in being able to have even the data? I, I, I don't know. Are the, the enforcement agencies, the SEC is the one that enforces the FCPA, correct? The SEC and the Department of Justice, yeah. Yeah, the DOJ. And, and, and how much of this is because they are able to subpoena the, the data centers that exist in the U.S. that have the, 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 the evidence towards bribery and corruption? I don't know how they prosecute them, but that, that surely could be a, a, a piece of it. But nonetheless, convictions of 174 companies and 115 individuals, um, including the largest FCPA enforcement ever uh, lately that we'll, that we'll talk about a bit. But um, where they said there could be some improvement is extending protection for, for whistleblowers and additional transparency um, in the resolution of cases. These are obviously often settled uh, these cases get settled um, with the DOJ. I don't know that there's any chance of of that uh, of that shifting the the regulation, the OECD prodding those issues. Um, but I would definitely be thinking about what we talked about earlier in the sense of having strong detection programs that you can point to um, using data analytics in particular to uh, identify this kind of activity and get ahead of it um, before you're dealing with with something like these 174 companies did. Moving on into digital, um, in our cyberbullied segment, there is an excellent article in Fraud Magazine about the called "The Truth About the Dark Web and and Fraud Trade." Uh, of course, all the links to every story we're talking about are in the are in the show notes. But this is one I don't feel like it's talked about enough in, I would say, the risk and compliance circle. It gets talked about to some degree, certainly in the infosec circle, but. Basically, what this article is pointing out is the how we might perceive what the the dark web actually is and what it can be used for, and, and certainly the misperception there is that it's all full of of hitmen and human traffickers. When the reality is, it has some very legitimate uses as well. In, in particular, when you think about whistleblowing and things like that, uh, the piece I'd like to point at is it is possible to monitor the dark web, and there's tooling that's built. Um, to do this, and that could be great source of data for your your risk and compliance programs. Phil, how much time have you been spending on the dark web? I personally have not spent any time on the dark web, but I do know that there are organizations who are making a business out of collecting and scraping the data from the dark web. And I look at a company like LexisNexis, who has a product called Emailage, where you can subscribe to this product and be able to shoot off any email addresses, IP addresses, and they will tell you how much fraud risk it, there is for those particular email addresses or IP addresses because they've been able to scrape this data from the dark web and, and various sources. Yeah, I mean, I personally, on a, on a non-corporate, on a personal front, I use an app called Jumbo, that way letting me know if it looks like passwords have been breached, that sort of thing. Um, there's tools that, that do this corporately too. So um, in particular, I think those tools, Phil, may be a great source of data for ACL Robotics to um, attach to and use in evaluating controls. So if I had a control uh, documented in my, in my InfoSec controls around monitoring the dark web for exposed data, that would be pretty easy to fully automate having a, a dark web scraper uh, and the robotics capability connected to that, flagging any exceptions and changing the control, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Or at least raising it as a, a, a risk score that would be combined with other factors for determining 
uh, the amount of risk in any particular individual or entity. So that, I think, leads well and brings us to our next story. This is the data heroics category, so making governance better with data. And in a complete, shameless self-promotion plug, uh, I would like to share my own article uh, I wrote for the Forbes Tech Council on, on Forbes's website uh, around using machine learning to uh, predict and detect fraud. And this this particular article was was fairly high level for that audience, just describing the the potential and the opportunity for for machine learning and in, in fraud detection. But Phil, maybe you could tell me about your favorite use case, the most impressed you've been with an organization actually pointing machine learning tools at fraud or corruption. Yeah. Uh, so I'm seeing this in some customers in conversations is applying machine learning towards analysis of categorization of transactions. So how transactions are being classified as whether it needs to be disclosed or not. So, so we talked a lot today about transparency and what is a gift in your ledger. It looks exactly the same as something that's not a gift. There are tiny, tiny little features that would help predict whether or not, and that's where people pointing machine learning algorithms toward are having more success than using traditional rules-based approaches. Excellent. Yeah, that is data heroics and, and understanding categorization and in, in the, the effort of anomaly detection um, is awesome. And I love the gift example, given all of our discussion about sheriff's departments receiving iPads and, and such topics earlier today. So on to our last segment for the finance types amongst us, um, paying the bills. And in this one, there was a story in uh, the journal and everywhere else again about Kodak disclosing that ex-executives sold stock options that they didn't own. So this is particularly controversial because there were some big moves in the Kodak stock price as uh, news around a, a potential large loan from the federal government they would be receiving Stock price moved around a lot. It looks like their system for tracking options hadn't appropriately expired or whatever certain options. And some people exercised and made money off it. And they had to disclose that. I don't know that if that's outwardly fraud as much as it is a mistake. It's somewhere on the line. I'm sure they'll be investigating that. But everything else we were talking about today, Phil, is a lot of talk about auditing payments and payees and cash and things like that. How about stock options? How about fixed assets? How about inventory? Yeah, stock options is an interesting one. I've, I've worked with organizations that have really strong programs and monitoring that, that have specific solutions for monitoring their stock options because they hand them out so readily. For the organizations that hand them out less frequently, perhaps like Kodak, they have less proper controls and, and procedures around them. And likely, like you said, it could be an error that occurred. This is where audit risk and compliance professionals come in and fill in that gap of a, of, of, of a, of a robust program to be able to do this more ad hoc testing and monitoring uh, like we do ourselves with our own stock options here at Galvanize. All right. And that's, the, uh, that's our news. That's the case studies for today. Think about how they impact your organization. And we will move on to our wrap-up. Uh, our section on Automate This, uh, where we'll talk about implementing all of these types of programs.
All right, Phil, time for our final segment of the show. We call this Automate This. And what I want to talk about in the Automate This segment is actually implementing, which we've actually done quite a bit of as we've gone throughout here, but I want to talk about actually implementing an anti-bribery, anti-corruption program in technology in particular to address in a way that will at least give you a, a set of kind of uh, conceptual tools to be thinking about how you would implement programs and technology to address all these kinds of issues that have recently come up that we've that we've talked about uh, before. So um, I think there's two big sides to implementing an, an anti-bribery, anti-corruption program. The side that companies are better at is the preventative controls and kind of the program side. So that's the things like publishing an anti-bribery or a conflict or a gift, whatever, publishing the policies and having employees certified to that. That's easy to do in, in, in technology, the, the review and, and updating of those, of those policies by all parties involved, delivering training uh, on those policies and making sure that all required training by different employee groups is completed. The, we brought up several times the implementing of a hotline. And so uh, platforms like ours and others have the ability to have the anonymous forms and, and, uh, and that sort of thing for whistleblowers to, to submit events and, and workflow those. And then just the, the process level controls. So if we're onboarding a new partner, how do we risk assess, get internal approvals, have partners certify our policies? Um, if we're bringing on new vendors, how do we do the same sorts of things, the internal approvals, the risk assessment certification? So that, that's the, 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 the process controls. All of those, I think, are necessary for an, an appropriate bribery program. And I believe all of those can be captured in one framework, one set of process level risks and controls in a technology solution that can then in turn um, then in turn be monitored. But Phil, the, the part I want to, to drill in on is a lot of that is, is fairly straightforward and programmatic, but a big piece of implementing those kinds of controls are basically registrations. So there's certainly the, the notion of registering a new, a new partner that we're going to work with, registering a new vendor. But relative to a lot of the stories we talked about today, how about the the registration of a gift or the registration of a of a potential conflict those are i think are an important part of the prevent controls is to ask for proactive registration those sorts of things and i know you've built programs with customers with large organizations to help do help do that so what are the keys to success in in implementing the, those sorts of registrations give pick whichever example you want maybe gift registration yeah, gift and conflict registration for those who are uninformed. Essentially, what you do is you have a web portal where employees or, or third parties, contractors that are acting on your behalf, agents, will go and register either received gifts that they receive or gifts that they're about to provide to a third party. And so it becomes extremely important for this portal to aid to be easy to use, have broad awareness and understanding and actually have a, an important bespoke workflow behind it as well. So when somebody hits send on submitting a, a gift or conflict registration, that the appropriate actions take place behind the scenes, that the right people take a look at it and approve it if necessary or otherwise just document it. And in working with organizations such as large pharmaceutical companies, this is extremely important when it comes to registering gifts and conflicts with physicians 
as that's such a key part of their business for, for, for their marketing purposes. But there's also a ton of both regulation and just moral obligation to be transparent with these types of transactions to physicians and healthcare providers. Healthcare providers being one, a big one is the government. Almost, you know, most government entities should probably be um, doing a great job of, of this, uh, all the highly regulated industries, really. I think an important piece you, you mentioned there I just want to touch on is you talked about broad awareness um, and understanding that registration is necessary in the first place. I think that goes back to my previous comment about the controls around policy certification and and training completion should be documented in the same place so that there's no excuse and no ex- and exceptions are resolved where that awareness has not been manifest in 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 documentation yet but following on that the actual registration of the of the uh, gifts and conflicts is really really impactful place for the technology to be used effectively because you can do things like differentiate on the size of the gift for for example and how far does it get get escalated is that what you were talking about in the sense of the workflow quote unquote behind the scenes like you said yeah that's exactly it so Many policies around bribery and corruption will have certain thresholds for what gifts are acceptable, which gifts are not, and the ones that are in the gray area where, okay, well, it's acceptable if it's been reviewed by the organizational corruption committee, for example. So, so as long as there have been enough eyes that have looked at it, transparency and sunshine wash away corruption is, is the old adage, and that's, that's a key part of these programs. The other aspect of this, though, that not many people are thinking about, and I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that, but the other aspect is people that choose not to disclose. So, so are there any detective measures that can be taken to identify when, say, a gift is not disclosed when it's been received or when a gift has been provided but not disclosed? Yeah, and that's what I want to I, I hit on next because I think organizations do a better job of the preventative controls and a worse job of the detective. But I'll wrap that up to say still this kind of gift registration, conflict registration, vendor registration and assessment, all of those sorts of things are really good preventative controls and really important in the sense that they go beyond just that. As a practitioner who's had to evaluate this stuff, I get so sick of seeing the fact that we have an anti-bribery policy and we made people certify to it as kind of the the complete set of preventative controls. It's just so ineffective compared to that registration. So thanks for the, um, for, so thanks for the comments there. And of course, um, whether it's our tool or others, there's great workflow and control that can be implemented there. So to your question, Phil, about then the detective piece, now looking for, to detect something like that, to detect a gift that wasn't registered, we're looking for a transaction that fits a category. It is a gift, perhaps depending on who that went to, it may have different levels of, of severity and more important or less important that we actually look at it. So I want to come back to that in just a second, because that's where I think we need to drill in with the technology. There's lots of other things that kind of fit into that, um, that, that fit into that category. Again, I'll go back to vendors and partners. We need to know our vendors and partners well, but also what kind of activity is going on with them. So this is also a good way of looking at transactions that are going through a vendor to look for something that might similarly be suspect, either the vendor defrauding us or the vendor being used as a way to funnel uh, funnel bribery. 
those sorts of things. Monitoring similarly sales opportunities. So if we are if we are making a sale in a high risk country, perhaps each of those sales opportunities in the pipeline should go through this kind of detective evaluation to be profiled and look for the chance that that sale is a sale that we shouldn't be making, either for reputational or, or, or regulatory reasons. Same with all of your commission payments. So a commission payment to uh, made on a large deal to a country manager in a high-risk country, surely we'd want those being um, evaluated and, and profiled. And then we get into all the sort of stuff that we talked about earlier on, just the comparisons, the comparison partners, vendors, and, and employee contact data to see where there's conflicts of interest there, monitoring that same kind of contact data against external lists like sanctions, politically exposed persons, et cetera. Or last, and but perhaps not least, monitoring the entire general ledger for red flags, things that were the things that were donations, strange transactions, strange journal entries, et cetera. All of those are really strong preventative controls. And they kind of all come back to this technique of looking at a transaction, profiling it, and then scoring how risky it is and categorizing it in some way. Gift, not gift, bribe, not bribe. This is where really uh, you've spent a ton of your time consulting for customers and you have deep expertise here. Can you talk a little bit about what are, what's, what's the keys to success there in that kind of basically risk scoring and categorizing transactions like we've talked about all day today? You know, it, risk scoring is, is obviously a, a really good way of, of consolidating a lot of different factors into determining whether or not a transaction requires additional scrutiny. The downside to the concept of risk scoring is people see it as a bit of a panacea. So they'll throw everything under the sun into their risk scoring. And so many times I've seen organizations implement 30 different aspects and factors that go into risk scoring, and they ultimately end up using three. (laughs) That is the biggest And most important takeaway that I would bring to anyone around risk scoring is do not ever boil the ocean on risk scoring. Don't think that throwing more factors at a transaction will help you better identify um, transactions for additional speed. At least not until you've tried less. Exactly. Start with three. And if that's not getting you what you need, then add a fourth and then add a fifth. Um, Because I've seen people that that get really creative and and, you know, there's a, there's a certain level of creativity and, and egoism that goes into it. It's like, oh, hey, yeah, we could look at, you know, transactions where the currency differs from the location where the transaction occurred. And it's like, well, that's great. But, you know, what about multinationals and you know, all these other things which end up being a non-issue? And ultimately, it's the two or three different factors that are the most important. Are they a politically exposed person? You know, who was making the, the transaction and, and when it was done? And what was the amount? These are these are the things that are actually important towards whether or not a transaction requires additional scrutiny. Yeah, and so is there is that where there is though a promise of of machine learning? Because I think the problem you're describing is people try to write their own rule set or their own kind of algorithm for for creating a risk score on a transaction that accounts for all of those things. And I'm just I, I don't know that the human brain is really that smart. Is that is that that where there is 
opportunity for machine learning or is it really the same there that people tend to feed too many fields of data into a machine learning model to if we're going to score using using machine learning across more factors i think there is a place for machine learning and there isn't in this particular case the challenge with using machine learning is twofold one is a lot of the data is not structured so you're dealing with descriptions you're dealing with names you're dealing with things that are not nicely wrapped up in the data feature. There's a lot of feature engineering that still has to go into it. And call it what you will, call it a risk scoring factor or call it a data feature that you've engineered. Both things require a bunch of work and effort and domain expertise to build. And at the end of the day, you're looking at the size of the transaction, you're looking at, you end up with the, the real factors that are important that, that end up at the core of it at the end of the day. So yeah, I think there's a place for machine learning here around finding and detecting fraud and, and bribery, but Make sure you do the, the basics first. Yeah, excellent. And so now I want to get a little bit nerdy to to drill into that just just enough to show what you're what you're going to be dealing with as you go down this path. So you mentioned a lot of times we're working with descriptions. We're looking at a whole bunch of payments, and an obvious example is payments that have something in the description that makes it look like a donation. There's a bunch of ways of looking at that character field. One of them is a hard rule: does it contain the word? donation. But donation happens in lots of languages. It may not use exactly that word, all kinds of other things. There's a second step that may be something like using what we call dice coefficient, basically a a way to mathematically look at a, a string, a set of words, a set of characters, and figure out statistically how similar are these to things that we don't, uh, that we'd be concerned about seeing in that description and, and using that. Third, there might be actually using some uh, natural language processing and trying to figure out what is the topic in that description, to topic modeling to, to extract a topic. All that stuff sounds neat, and especially going to the extremes with things like natural language processing. Where are the majority of actual exceptions you've seen in your history, Phil, found? It's basic keyword analysis. It's the very first thing you mentioned in that whole list, which is... Yeah, <laughs> That's the highlight, yeah. Just run it against, you have a list of words. And yeah, you can have a list that's not just English words. You can include foreign words and, and all sorts, but build this list. Don't keep it static. That's the key part is, you know, there was a customer that found out that, that there was an employee using their expenses for paying their Harvard tuition of their child. So yeah, now all of the Ivy League schools are part of their keyword list. That's what you want to do to have an effective program is to constantly evolve your keyword list. Yeah, you can go through machine learning techniques like lemmatization. You can look at um, natural language processing and all that advanced stuff, but start with the basics. You haven't got the basics down. (laughs) You shouldn't be doing this advanced stuff. So completely agree. And I think, um, you know, we go back to the $3.3 billion settlement in 1MDB. Um, I'm I'm quite confident that could have that would have been identified through very simple, it would have been flagged for review with with very simple uh, analysis. So now we've covered the preventative and the detective controls, and the last I want to just talk about is you've you've touched on to some degree, but just the workflow after that. So often I see people way overcomplicate the analysis piece, like we just described, when good red flags, <laughs> likely issues, aren't actually being workflowed and resolved, either because they're they're afraid of there's too many false positives or whatever the case is, 
what's what's the secret field to actually getting stuff actioned? Yeah, first you need to resource it properly. So the organizations that I've worked with that are most effective are serious about this. They have people that are are invested in the program, that are championing the program, that are ready to review the results of the program and detection. Also, setting up the right rules in place around that workflow and resolution. It's not just kicking every single transaction out to your corruption team to review. They're going to get overwhelmed. But eliminate anything under $50. Make that part of the rules. Anything over a certain dollar amount definitely needs to be reviewed by a couple of different people, not just one level. You put a risk score on this transaction for a reason. Use it. Exactly. Use the risk score that has been put onto that transaction and attach that um, to the workflow and resolution process as, as part of the logic. The other piece that I would also say around the workflow and resolution is making it as simple as possible to get in and out. This is hardly anyone's day job to raise conflict and conflict of interest and bribery challenges. Get a program that is easy to get in, easy to get out, maybe through SSO or uh, without even having to log in is my suggestion. Absolutely. And I'll just throw on there, last but not least, it, it sounds like auditing the auditor, but just put that one last control in place that is monitoring the exceptions for exceptions that don't get resolved. Simple to do and uh, just as a as a program administrator, let you say, okay, if, if, if we see um, red flags that aren't getting actioned, either I'm going to escalate those or I know there's something wrong in my in my program. So that's it. All of that is uh, automate this. Um, not as hard to build a, um, like I said, compared to your peer organizations, it's really not that hard to build a, a decent bribery corruption uh, kind of fraud program. So thank you for that, Phil, and the expertise. We look forward to getting your uh, questions and commentary. And uh, otherwise, we're ready to um, wrap up for today. Any parting words of wisdom, Phil? Well, I'd like to see from the audience what people's thoughts are around expectations of privacy that we should have versus the transparency. This is going to be an ongoing battle between A and B moving forward. So I'd like to know what the audience thinks around hey, is it okay if my employer monitors the things that I spend on? What if all my expenses were posted on a corporate internet for everyone to see? What's wrong with that? <laughs> Excellent. We'll uh, collect feedback and, and do the deep dive on that one next time. Thanks, Phil. Uh, this was great. We will uh, look forward to seeing you and everybody else next time. Cool. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for joining us for this week's Office Hours. Make sure to visit wegalvanize.com for free resources to help you deliver better enterprise governance. See you next time.